What's up, everybody? So I want to let you know that the Alpha Brain Golden Ticket Sweepstakes are still going on. And that's just a rad opportunity not only to stock up on your Alpha Brain or give Alpha Brain a try. Because if you haven't tried Alpha Brain, it's definitely one of those tools that's different than any stimulant you've had and gets your brain firing in an absolutely different way. And that's what our clinical research has shown, and that's what everybody who's tried it. You know, we've sold over a million bottles of Alpha Brain, and the results are in. It works. It's awesome. So this is a great opportunity, though, because if you get the Golden Ticket Sweepstakes, everybody is a winner, and there's a bunch of cool shit that we're giving away, from kettlebell sets to different other products, to discounts. Every single person is going to be a winner if you go to the golden ticket sweepstakes so check it out on it.com slash golden ticket and then enter the code and fill in the entry form there's going to be a grand prize for one of you which is going to be a trip out here to austin and on hq so you'll be able to come hang at the hq and do all the awesome on it things so definitely check it out go to on it.com slash golden dash ticket and get your 30 count or 90 count bottle of alpha brain People often ask me, what is your favorite Onnit product? And it's always a funny question because I'm so deeply involved in all of the products that we create from the conception to the actualization. I'm right there in the process. So it's like picking one of your kids. But now we have a new kid that just came on and that's our almond milk latte emulsified MCT oil. And I started working on this when we had the idea with Brendan Schaub to create this kind of instant almond milk latte that had incredibly healthy ingredients which of course is the emulsified mct oil so it has all that rich creaminess that you would get from that perfect almond milk latte just that tinge of sweetness which we do without sugar using those plant-based natural sweeteners that don't have a glycemic index that don't have any additional carbohydrate and support that ketogenic diet with that mct oil which is going to provide you that direct energy source support your weight management goals support your cognition goals mct is great across the board for all of that but the real benefit is that you can grab a cup of iced coffee i like doing it with the nitro squirt some of this in and just stir it and you get that instant iced latte experience and if it's a hot coffee you can do the same thing just squirt it in and it tastes like a delicious almond milk latte without you having to do any of the work no blenders or anything required you just have an instant almond milk latte and it's in my opinion our best flavor that we've come out with yet i mean the emulsified mct oils across the board change the game but this one particularly changes the game and i really encourage you guys to give it a try I think it's one of the best products that we've come out with in a long time. So go to onnit.com slash Aubrey and check out our brand new emulsified almond milk latte MZT oil. When I got the confirmation that I was going to get to podcast with Dr. Jordan Peterson, I got a little nervous. And I think I got nervous because he's so well-educated and he's so intelligent and his depth of knowledge is so vast that to interact with someone of that kind of intellect is really going to call the best out of me so i did the best i could to research to read his book to listen to all his podcasts and in doing so i found myself incredibly inspired and it really led to a really enjoyable experience when we actually got to sit down and chat and i tried to steer it into the areas where i was most interested areas where you might not have heard dr peterson talk about in some of his other podcasts and some of the strengths that he has outside of the norm and I think you'll get to see a slightly different side of Dr. Peterson than maybe you're used to. And that's the goal with this. We had an incredible conversation. And I hope you guys enjoy it as much as I did. Well, this is a genuine honor to be sitting here with you. I've 
got the opportunity to listen to you on a lot of different venues and got a chance to read through a lot of your book and so much of it is so deeply resonant with things that I felt experiences that I've learned and interactions with different athletes in ways that I can draw but your ability to kind of draw these things to their ultimate logical conclusions and anchor them in like a deep truth has been really a pleasure to kind of you know witness and a pleasure to kind of provide structure to a lot of these fundamental understandings that I think I've felt so yeah well it's something that that I would say the more critical readers the ones who are more dismissive of what I'm doing seem to miss is that because the book has been criticized for presenting these truisms you know that everyone knows it's like well people know these things for a reason but they don't know why they know them and there are deep reasons for knowing them right and so I wanted to chase those reasons all the way down to the bottom because when something turns in something that's true can turn into a cliche and it's not true anymore, right? Because it becomes cliched. But if it contains wisdom, then you have to renew it so that it gets its force back. Revivify. Mm -hmm, exactly. Yeah. Exactly that. And so chasing some of these things to the bottom really does that. And so, also, you know, anchoring them deep. Because if mm. they're not anchored, they can be swayed either mm. way by Just like us. manipulations of words and the symbol. You know, mm. words are dirty things. They get barnacles of mistruth that mm -hmm. cling to them, especially when you're talking about a word like God or talking a word like love or truth. Or good or, yeah, good. yeah that's I right, mean, any of these things. These become these massive forces, you know, these flotillas of mm. a nectar, a kernel of truth and actual meaning and then all this shit that people that's right. pile onto them. So they're cleaning those off and then anchoring them back to what their true meaning yeah, is. Yeah, yeah, they get mouthed carelessly yeah. and then they lose their force, right? And then right. people stop believing that they're valuable and that's really not good because some things need to be valuable or nothing's valuable. Mm -hmm. That's not such a good outcome. Yeah, that's not the outcome we're looking for. No. And I think another really brilliant thing that i'd love to continue to explore with you is anchoring these truths and how they've been expressed in story and it's now yeah. i've had this like great experience of going and re-analyzing reviewing all of the stories that i've enjoyed i even like i watched aladdin on broadway mm -hmm. you know and it was i remember enjoying that as a kid i enjoyed the story as yeah. a kid and it resonated obviously at some level but then seeing you know the truth that was actually expressed in there mm. that you know jasmine, yeah that's funny yeah seeing the the diamond in the rough in the street urchin that the outward appearances were actually meaningless and him trying to put on this fancy show as a prince to impress the princess mm. was all nonsense she mm. loved him it's like a pickup artist heart. <laughs> yeah exactly yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly and you start to see like oh man that was a true story mm. not true in the sense that there wasn't a laz and a jasmine and a talking monkey and a genie but true Mm. nonetheless mm. and then every you know all the good stories you end up finding this and the one that i've well, been genie is the root word for genius <laughs> so right. and, and it's a really interesting idea because a, a genie is something that's as robin williams said unlimited power tiny little living space <laughs> right and yeah. but it's a really interesting idea because there's this there's this unlimited power that's associated with genius but it's constrained and that's really what human human the human spirit is like because it has this aspect of the infinite right and it is something that can grant wishes but it's also constrained terribly and we're constrained mortally and physically and all that but the thing is is that both the infinite possibility and the constraint are necessary right they, that's what makes up the genie it, it has to be both at the same time and the idea mm -hmm. that you know if you find your genie you can you can have your wishes it's it's right but you have to really what 
You have to wa want what you're wishing for, right? You have to make the proper sacrifices to get it. It can't be just some whim. You think, well, I wish I had whatever sure. it is you're wishing for. It's like, and that's where people get prayer wrong mm -hmm, as well. Right. That's you right. Know, like hoping that God is the genie and can just grant mm. you this boon, you yeah. know, for nothing. You yeah, know, that's not how it works. No, you know, it's not how it works. <laughs> no. you have to ask for something that you would rather not have. Yeah, which is usually wisdom. You know, I was, it's funny. I was talking about that with the audience in in um, Dallas last night. Somebody had asked me about prayer, and and you know, they asked me if I prayed, and and I thought, well, it depends on what you mean by that exactly. It's like I don't ask God for favors or for wishes, you know, but I do think that if you sit on the edge of your bed and things aren't going very well for you, and you ask what foolish thing you're doing to make it worse, that you'll get an answer right now. And it won't be the one you want, but it might be the one that if you listen to would set things straight. I think that's almost, I don't think that I've ever been in a situation where if something wasn't going right for me and I sat and thought, okay, uh, all right, I'm willing to figure out what I'm doing wrong, which is a big thing to think because you never know how much you're doing wrong. It might be something that you really don't want to contend with. But if you clear some space to meditate on that, the probability that you'll figure out something that you did that was stupid, that's bending you and twisting you in the wind, you'll, you'll get an answer yeah. very, very rapidly. I remember, you know, for me, prayer is one of those things. It's like in case of emergency, break glass. <laughs> you know, like in case of emergency, start praying. And I'd I'd love to actually use that practice when times are more calm and mm -hmm. not when it's like the absolute last resort. And it, but in those situations where I've just had no other way that my mind could figure anything out, mm -hmm. no other way that I could see any sense of clarity, any sense of direction, any way out of the current state of chaos or mm -hmm. conundrum that I'm in then I'll start to pray and it's this deep like just please like give me like any kind of clarity any way to see out and like you said remarkably you know that wisdom comes through some well, little thing. Well it's, it's, it's funny I mean you know obviously if you have a problem and you think about it you can think up a solution and it's not obvious how you do that you know I mean it's not like you know how you're manipulating your neurons or something mm -hmm. it 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 happens of its own accord in some sense, like you can participate in it, I guess, and you can interfere with it, and it seems to take a certain amount of willpower, but it still all happens mysteriously behind the scenes. And I would say this sort of attitude towards, let's say, prayer that we're discussing is just an extension of that. And it's something like, well, you admit that there's a problem first, and then you ask for the minimum necessary intervention, which would be, all right, well, I'd like to move forward on this some small amount that someone like me could actually manage and I, I'd be willing to carry it out. And then you reorient the way you're thinking as a consequence of that and something usually pops out of the abyss to guide you. Yeah. It's very strange, but it's not really any stranger than the fact that we can think at all because th the fact that we can think is actually very strange. Mm -hmm. It's strange like the fact that we can dream is strange. you know, th And that's strange beyond belief that you can dream. And, and or that something in you dreams, which is a much better way of thinking about it, because it's not like you're really in control of your dreams. Yeah. They just sort of happen. So I think people can get kind of also tripped up in this idea that it's the external God that you're praying to necessarily, and it's an external force outside mm -hmm. of you that's piping this wisdom straight mm -hmm. in through your ear holes, and that's where it's coming from. 
but when you pray you could also be praying to that higher part of yourself mm. that divine spark inside yourself the higher self the higher wisdom that you hold and i don't think there's really a necessary distinction that you have to draw from there this could be mm. just you surrendering to your own higher wisdom saying mm. look i'm stuck in this hedge of mazes i can't figure it out you know can is there some illumination mm. <laughs> that can help me you know at least point the first step in that direction mm. and then i can start to plod my way plod my way through and that's you know universally what happens but you have to yeah. almost admit like okay i'm stuck yeah well that's it there's that well, that's why in in most religious systems humility is stressed right because humility says i have a problem and i'm stuck and humility says whatever i'm doing isn't working and therefore i'm wrong and so like as soon as you say that and you don't have to get metaphysical about it except and in my case i not only say it but i'm usually weeping mm -hmm. <laughs> in mm -hmm. deep pain mm -hmm. and laying on the ground right going, Why? well what then help? then you know you're really saying it <laughs> yeah yeah then you mean yeah. it yeah right yeah right and so you know what what you do in some sense psychologically is you admit to yourself that your current frame of reference is faulty mm -hmm. and then you start opening the door to a different kind of thinking which is more creative thinking it's more lateral thinking saying well i'm wrong but that's not necessarily a problem because i could be right if i thought some other way well you know that's great often it works yeah and there's there's almost no lack there's almost no end to the utility of trying to figure out which ways that you're wrong yeah because there's lots of them and every time you discover one then you don't have to be quite so wrong anymore that's a really good deal yeah and one of the things i was trying to stress in 12 rules for life and also in this first book i wrote maps of meaning is that you need to decide at some point in your life whether you're more in love with what you know or what you don't know you know and people tend to be in love with what they know because you don't want to have that shaken and challenged and it's not surprising but the problem with that is is that you don't know enough it, unless everything's going perfectly for you mm -hmm. and everything around you you set in order perfectly it's like your ignorance outweighs your knowledge it's yeah. like so you should make friends with what you don't know and even what you know you'll forget and you'll need to like reimagine mm -hmm. that in a different way and use a different metaphor and understand mm -hmm. it because, you know, in that deep prayer, in the same story, you know, I'm in New York in this hotel room, everything's gone to hell, you know, and I just can't find my way out. And the message that came through, without getting into the specific details, was the sun does not measure its light by the shadows that it casts. And I never thought of that metaphor mm. like that, you know. And so did you, so, so what so basically happened? What was, I, was, did, did, I was measuring my own worth and my own validity as a person by the external things that were happening right right, right. The, the consequences of of my acts like what was going on yep and that was using that to create my own hell of unworthiness and my own hell mm. and then so that that right. metaphor came in like the sun does not measure its light by the shadows that it casts. that's a hell of a poetic statement that right yeah it's a good one and i was like oh shit mm. and then from there that trick you know so this was a five-day descent into hell that that kind of crescendoed in this moment in the hotel room and then that one statement which i'd never imagined that before it seemed greater yeah, than one. than one than i had anything that i could think of at the moment oh yeah it's a good one it's then, really poetically put yeah then led me out and that that's mm. led me through since then honestly right. it's also not self-evident what it means right it has to be unpacked i have a yeah. chapter about that right which is compare yourself to who you were yesterday and not to who someone else is today mm. it's the same basic idea mm -hmm. right is that you have to get your markers for success right yeah because otherwise you can end up in the situation you described which is that like there's always people out there who are doing far better than you on pretty much anything you yep. want to uh, imagine and if all you're doing is seeing yourself in their reflected light let's say then it's going to be pretty damn dismal 
but it's not a good comparison because you shouldn't just compare well first of all there's danger in just comparing yourself to others period because they're not you and god only knows what struggles they had to undertake to get to where they were or what burdens they're currently carrying that you're not aware of you just don't know not any sure. of that but you can certainly contrast yourself with yourself and that's a lot better and that's also a great it's way the only way it is the only way well it's also the only way of really of really measuring anything approximating proper improvement you yeah. can actually tell when you're a little better than you were yesterday right so and and you can actually do that that's another thing that's so interesting about it is that you can actually make yourself a little better in some way pretty much well I don't know if it's at every moment, but you can certainly do it every day. Well, it can go two steps forward and one step back. It can go in this kind mm. of spiraling, but as long as you're going from low left to top right, right. on the graph, right. you know, with that's the right. volatility right. of yeah, the market, absolutely. you know, which will certainly go up and down. Yeah. I think that's one and of which the- Which is also a necessary thing to factor in. Sure. Right, because you should, and that, that's also part of not what gripping yourself too tightly or not putting the constraints on too hard is that you're exactly right. You're, so you're moving up to the top right-hand corner but you do it like a thermostat. It's back mm. and forth, sit, looking for that center line. You have to overshoot on both sides to find it. So you have to you have to allow yourself a certain latitude for error. And that's a useful thing to know too. One of the things I tell people when they're trying to develop a vision for their life or an implementable plan is um, make a bad plan. Like make the best one you can, but don't get obsessive about it. It's like make a yeah. plan, implement it. You'll figure out when you implement it why it's stupid exactly. And then you can fix it a little bit. And then you can fix it a bit more, and then you can fix it a bit more, and then eventually you get a good plan, even if you start you with to, something. But that's you have not to good. do it hard. You have to like go. You know what I mean? And I think a lot of people make mistakes is because they'll have a plan and they'll halfway do it. Mm -hmm. And you don't learn. Like the fa a failure or success is both success mm -hmm. because you learn from both of those. Mm -hmm. What you don't learn shit from is staying, is going and going part of the yeah. way and having that fallback position mm -hmm. of, well, I didn't really try. There's it. a, there's a, really there's a statement it. in Revelation. It's a very strange book. Christ comes back as the judge. Now, Jung commented about that, Carl Jung, and he said, look, the Christ in the Gospels is very, very merciful. And the problem with that, so, but he's an ideal. And an ideal is always a judge because you compare yourself with your ideal. So the ideal has to have a judgmental element. And he said well, that was missing in the Gospels. And that's why Revelations was tapped on to the end of the Bible. And Christ comes back as a judge. And one of the things he says is, if you were neither hot nor cold, I'll, I'll spit you out of my mouth. And he actually uses, it's a word that refers to vomit. So it's a disgust phrase, but it's exactly relevant to that. It's like, so the people who are judged most harshly aren't the ones who make the worst mistakes or who, or who do the best things. It's the ones that stay in the middle and never commit themselves, yeah. who, who want to have it both ways, right? And so that's a, that's a hell of a thing to know is that it's okay to fail as long as you're in it as long as you're all in say totally. or the more all in you are the better and the failures are okay but but hedging your bets no doesn't get that, you anywhere no, no and that's something you'll you know i've been fortunate to learn from some of these top elite performers like we'll have someone like tim kennedy in here who's mm -hmm. you know top tip of the spear in the in the special forces also top ufc fighter just top performer across the board and he'll talk about when i go to something i try to fail as quickly as possible mm -hmm. i try to push myself to that point where either my body breaks down or the system breaks down or something goes so i know mm -hmm. and it, and the longer i can push it out maybe that's a good that's a really good plan if i haven't been able to fail quite yet you know but he'll mm. he sees that as like as a goal almost mm. like, well i think one of the things like one of the things i learned when i was in my 20s was how much work i could do 
because when I was in graduate school, I basically worked myself to the point of exhaustion because I thought, because I got curious. It's like, well, how much work can I do? <laughs> what and is it, my it's, capacity? it's a complicated question, right? Because it's like, how much work can I do today? But then, well, it's not just today. It's a succession of days. If I work this hard, will I wear myself an, yeah, out in a week or tomorrow a month? To, from mm, tomorrow right, to pay for today. Right, so you got to figure that out. But I think when you're young, I think it's really something to do in your 20s is to push yourself to your limit so that you know where it is and then you back off a bit so that it can be sustainable. Because you want to, you don't want to like die when you're 27, even though there's a romance about that and lots of people, even successful people do that. It's not a really very good plan. No. So you want to push yourself to that extreme and see what you can manage and then pull back so you can iterate it. But you don't know where that is unless you unless you push yourself past what you can and bear, you, really. Even when you're in an indulgent situation, like let's say you're having drinks, there's a certain point where the return on having those extra two more drinks at the end of the night mm. is going to cause an you know an irreparable amount of pain mm -hmm. that's going to come the next day mm -hmm. and so it's not worth it so even even these lessons that you could apply to the positive aspects of life you can also apply to these other simple things like okay at this point these tequilas are going to make me maybe feel this much better mm -hmm. and tomorrow they're going to make me feel this much worse i'm not doing it mm -hmm. you know and that's like i think a wisdom that you mm -hmm. get you know just by applying and it's like i guess it's that kind of like arithmetic it's like almost doing math mm. at the end like all right this much pleasure for how much pain mm. at the end well it's also this much work predict productivity now for how much recovery i'm going to need mm. later mm. and then you can start to kind yeah, well, of i think that is that is partly wisdom because one of the things that i've been so so you know there's lots of different ways to interpret the world and you can maybe even make a case that there's an endless number of ways to interpret the world and the problem with that is that it kind of disorients you in terms of what you should be doing. But just because there's a very large number of ways to interpret the world doesn't mean there's a very large number of pro productive, meaningful, and sustainable ways to interpret the world. And one of the things you do have to do is figure out how you can conduct yourself today so that you don't upset the apple cart in a week or a month or a year, right? Because you're playing an iterating game. One of the things I often tell my clients, and this is a really useful thing to know too, there's a lot of emphasis in the New Testament, especially in the Sermon on the Mount, on paying attention to the day. It's something you also see a bit in Buddhism, you know, to sort of focus That's on what the I moment. Wrote my, it's my book, Own the Day, Own Your Life. Right, right, you right, know? right, exactly. Focus exactly. on the day. Yeah, so well, the thing that's so interesting about the day, the day is like a page in a book. Of course, there's many pages in a book, but the page repeats. And so one of the things I often had my clients do, I'll tell you a little story. I had one client who was spending about, 45 minutes a night fighting with his young son about when to go to bed. And so, you know, they weren't having a pleasant time of it because it was just a constant battle. And that's common. Like, it's very common for parents of young children to be locked in a battle that occurs day after day. Sometimes it's around eating. Sometimes it's toilet training. Sometimes it's general behavioral issues. Sometimes it's bedtime. So we did some arithmetic. It's like, okay, 40 minutes a day. So that's 280 minutes a week. So that's, let's say, five hours. 20 hours a month or it's 240 hours in a year that's six work weeks that's a month and a half you're spending a month and a half of work weeks doing nothing but fighting with your son what makes you think you're going to like him <laughs> right well and you know it's, it's it's you think well it's only 40 minutes a day it's like don't don't fool yourself no. anything that's every day is a significant percentage of your life you know because what you you're awake let's say 16 hours five of those hours are basically maintenance so you got about 11 and then seven of those are work. So now you're down to four. 
And so if you're spending 15 minutes a day doing something painful and stupid and you do it every day, it's like 10% of your productive life. Yeah. And so it's really useful to, to get, because people think backwards. They think, well, I have a vacation coming up and that's really important. It's like, no, it's not. You're only going to do it once. It's not that important. Yeah. Um, how you treat each other at lunchtime, if you eat together every day, that's your life. Yeah. Fix that. Yeah. Get, it, get it so that the food's good. Get it so that you're happy with the people that are sitting there. Fix that. It's like, poof, 10% of your life is fixed. I thought in your book, when you talked about the amount of times that you would see your parents, you mm. know, if, because you were seeing them a couple times a, year, a, couple times a year, they were mm. 80, they maybe had 10 years, saw them mm. twice a year, I think, so it was 20 times. Mm. And I was like, wow, that's mm. a very useful thing to actually start thinking about mm. because actually counting the number of times that you get to see somebody mm. and then because it is the ultimate it is death that gives us the preciousness of mm. life it is mm. the the expiration it hammers at home yeah it's the scarcity that makes it really valuable mm. and and mm. and actually embracing that and understanding that allows you to align yourself to truth mm. in a way and appreciation mm. for what that experience is so whether it's that or whether you know i talk about it in my book the time commuting and I use the analogy that Robert Greene had of a live time versus dead time. Like you're in your car. Most people are in their car about 30 minutes each way to work yep. in a lot of places. Well, that's an hour a day, five days a week. Absolutely. And like, so what are you going to do at that time? Are you going to listen to Top 40 or some news radio that's going to pollute you with some narcotizing dysfunction of everything that's, gonna, that's happening? Or are you going to listen to a podcast? Are you going to mm. learn a language? Are you going to listen to an audio book and level up your life during yep. that time? Or at the very least, practice mindfulness do mm. some pranayama some breathing exercises mm. that are going to put you in a state so that when you go home and see your wife and see your kids you're not all flustered from work and you can have that entry back into your life with a big hug and yep. a which is a good exhale. way which is a good which is a good way to to enter your house yeah that's another thing to think about it's like well how many times are you going to enter your house well a lot okay <laughs> well how about you get that right you know because maybe there's something that your family should do when you come home or maybe there's something you should do with them when you come home and it, it is part of that think you got to look at yourself i often counsel my clients to my students to detach yourself from yourself it's like okay you don't know who you are and you don't know what you're doing so why don't you just watch for a while like what is it that you actually do say every day and and that coming home is a good example people never think that i come home every day it's like yeah okay turns out that's important be good to get it right that's why people like having a dog yeah, you know, the dog the, gets it right every yeah, time. Yeah, the dog gets it right. That's right. The dog gets <laughs> it right every like time. They're like hundred percent. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, and you know, that, it's so funny because because the dog gets that right every day, you will feed the dog for its whole <laughs> life, right? You'll take it for walks. You'll clean up after. It's the only reason is because the dog gets you coming home right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Totally. So you know, it's not so bad. And if you if you have little kids and you let them greet you when you come home, they'll greet you like a dog does. You know, <laughs> yeah. they're real happy to see you. It's like. That's a good thing to facilitate. And if you come home and you train your kids that when you come home, you're a mess and you're angry and you're yep. frustrated, they're not going to want to greet you like no. that. No, no. You know, so you'll be look. training them the opposite That's way right. and you're creating these negative right. patterns. Or here's something you can really do if you want to train them to, to not react to you well at all, is that come home and when they bounce up happy to see you, be crabby and criticize them. <laughs> that really works. Because yeah. if it's you really good, want good to plan. punish someone, you wait till they do something good, then you punish them. That's super Because it turns effective. their fucking world upside down. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it and, really hurts people eh, to have yeah, that. Totally. So it's something to really notice if you're married. It's like, don't punish your wife for doing things you want her to do. And if you think, well, I don't, it's like, oh, yes, you do. You do. You have to watch. 
because it's really easy to do. Mm. Partly too, because maybe you're bitter about something or maybe you're unhappy because of work or, you know, when someone pops, comes along and they're sort of happy and that actually irritates you because you're not very happy and you're kind of mad at the world. And so they're happy to see you or they're happy about something and you snap at them. It's like, do that 50 times. Yeah, and watch the downstream effects. The, of that. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's not especially not when, a good strategy. Yeah, I'd say especially when people are are young. And I want to I want to get to one of my actual questions I prepared here um, and talk about it because you mentioned it before. Page two hundred five of your book, you were talking about when you were kind of reconciling with your shadow when you were mm. working in the hospital, and you said, "I soon divided myself into two parts: mm. one that spoke, and one more detached that paid attention and judged." Yeah, I hate that part. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, and, and for me, so for me, this happened. This happened for me out of necessity because I had, you know, by most rights, comparably compared to what most people have done, I had a beautiful childhood. But my father had a particular trait in which I could say something one day. Like, for example, he was playing ping pong. I was four years old, three, four years old. He was playing ping pong. He took a stroke hit off the top of his paddle and just shot across the room. He was going for like a forehand smash, shot across the room, way like hit the corner of the wall. And I was just passing through and I go, home run, and kept walking. Two days later, he corners me, throws me down in the corner of the room and says, how dare you humiliate me in front of my competition? I can't believe you said that, threw me off my game. That was, hmm. you know, like you, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, holy shit. Mm-hmm, I had yeah. forgotten about even saying that i'd forgotten mm. about how that could have possibly been perceived and i'm this mm. little kid and it's my, actually a pretty good joke yeah, yeah i mean right? you know for a four-year-old it's yeah, a pretty good yeah, joke it wasn't bad <laughs> yeah it wasn't, wasn't enough, bad yeah. home run i don't yeah. know yeah. made sense to me yeah and so anyways that and and that would happen repeatedly where it wouldn't even be immediate it would mm. be like delayed like he would it would fester yeah and it yeah grew interesting. And, and so we would come at that me means later you're touching on a complex Yes, yeah, for yeah. sure. For Something sure. was under he's, there causing he, there all sorts of trouble. All sorts of trouble. And mm-hmm. he was he worked, you know, to my dad's credit, he he knew he had issues and he worked very hard on those. He mm-hmm. just couldn't get himself completely out of the maze. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, it, it, when someone does that to you a few times, you know there's something in there that needs to be fought through for deep, like about a month, deep, like horrible month. Deep. And yeah. he fought and he and he fought hard. But the the effect of that gave me this intense judge of everything I said. So I did. I fractured myself into two parts and Mm -hmm. everything i say i have this watcher of everything how could this be perceived and then splinters into a million different possibilities could this be perceived as an insult could this Mm -hmm. be perceived as a slight is this joke like this which in some regards has made me a very effective communicator and it's almost one of my superpowers Mm -hmm. so that moment of trauma created this superpower of really being able to understand how my words can be communicated Mm -hmm. But so did and did that make you more careful with your words? A thousand percent, uh-huh. hyper careful, mm-hmm. hyper careful with mm-hmm. my words. But it also created this watcher that is always watching and always judging what I do, mm-hmm. which is a sense a source of suffering because I mm-hmm. I felt like it's very difficult for me to get fully engaged in anything because I'm always re- keeping some part of me that's judging everything that I'm saying. So this fracture of self is a sort of sense of suffering. Are, well, are there are are there times when that goes away? Like yes. Th- and those are the things that I've sought most right, in my life. Right, like right. those are the solutions. And that's any type of flow. So that was basketball for me. When I was playing basketball, the watcher went away. Right. Until after the game, when the watcher would come back hard and tell me how bad I sucked and mm-hmm. whatever, the judge would judge me there. But when I was playing or when I'm making love or when I'm playing music. or So I've spent a lot of my life finding the ways to unify that. And I'm, I'm curious... For you, it's obviously a very useful thing mm-hmm. 
to have that watcher and have that observer. But mm. do you see a point where that watcher and the self kind of comes back together and you no longer, you've almost like taken that wisdom and ingrained it yeah, so you no well, longer need that separation? Well, you know, what's funny. I, I think that that is well laid out in the story of Pinocchio in the Disney story because, which is a very, it's a very strange and complicated story not least because it draws an analogy between a cricket and Christ, which is cricket, Jesus Christ, and the conscience. They're all the same thing, which is very, very, very strange. But the cricket in, in Jiminy Cricket is, is obvious, or in Pinocchio, is obviously you know, a higher entity in some sense because it's the conscience, so it's the judge. But the movie is very interesting because it, it presents that as flawed. Like as Pinocchio stops being a puppet, his conscience stops being a sort of wandering tramp, right? They both hone themselves. And at the very end, Pinocchio turns into a real boy, but the conscience turns into something that is akin to the stars, right? He gets a gold star. Mm. And so, and I spent a lot of time thinking about that. It's like, well, what the, what the hell is that? What, what's going on there exactly? And what it is, is that that judge that you're talking about, and I wrote a little bit about this in, in 12 Rules, that judge that you have internally, which is, let's call it the voice of conscience, it suffers from a certain generic quality, you know? So it, it's, it's judging you in a cliched manner. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean it's wrong, but it's cliched. It's not fully informed. And so what you want to do throughout your life is have a dialogue with that because it needs to learn just like what it's judging needs to learn. And maybe if that dialogue you know, it's, it's not that much different than having a relationship, like a long-term relationship, like a marriage, because you're continually communicating with any luck and you're modifying each other in the communication. Yeah. And you have that judge, which you need, because it makes you alert and makes you watchful sure. and makes you consider your actions. But it isn't God, that, that internal voice. It doesn't know everything, so it needs to learn too. And so I think it's reasonable to engage it in dialogue and to find out, and not to make the instantaneous assumption that just because the judge says that what you're doing is wrong, that it's absolutely correct in its judgment. Mm -hmm. If you want to fight back and say, no, I, I, I'm going to defend myself against that internal voice. Not, I'm not going to listen to it because it might be right. It might be right. You want to listen, but it needs to learn too. And so you can get that dialogue going. And then I think that you can get that union across yeah. time. Because then there's harmony. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that that's a brilliant way to think about it because I think you can externalize and think that the judge is useful but bad but then if you if the judge is learning constantly mm -hmm. and and evolving and ascending mm -hmm. as you are as mm -hmm. well then that those parts of you can be in be in this sort of harmony because mm -hmm. there isn't just one self there's multiple so there always mm -hmm. will be multiple aspects well of the even self. thinking is, is is a multiplicity of selves I mean, right right because if you think if you really think about something basically what you do is you split yourself into at least two avatars maybe three who knows it depends on your capacity and each of them adopts a position and argues. I mean, that's what thought is. It's, it's you divide yourself into two hypothetical entities and let them fight it out, and then you side with the victor. But it's definitely the case, so, so it's definitely the case that we have a multiplicity of selves, and if we didn't, we wouldn't be as flexible as we are. Because really what you're doing when you're thinking, apart from splitting yourself into a multiplicity of selves, is you're splitting yourself into a multiplicity of selves, many of which you're going to allow to die so that you don't have to, mm -hmm. right? So you have an idea and you play it out in your imagination. It's like a video game in a sense. That's why we like video games, but you play it out in your imagination. And if when you play it out, the consequence is not what you want, 
then you just kill that thing off. Then you don't have to die. So that was yeah. Alfred North Whitehead. He said, uh, the purpose of thinking is so that our thoughts die instead of us. It's absolutely brilliant. And it, it's a very nice Darwinian take on it because what happens in animals is that animals can't really think. I mean, they can a bit, but not like us. So the way animals adapt to the universe is they produce a bunch of baby animals and most of them die. Yeah. And human beings do that too. But we also produce avatars of ourselves and then we launch them in a fictional universe and all the ones that don't manage it die but we don't have to we can identify with the ones that stay it's alive it's almost like the stoic idea of premeditation you know where you look at all the different possibilities mm -hmm. how could all of these things go wrong and then before you take action mm -hmm. and then when you take action i think that another area where people get tripped up is sometimes they get lost they don't add the action part of it because mm -hmm. you will not have perfect understanding of which way is the yep. right way well the, the there's another thing they do too which is a mistake because you might think well you don't want to act till you know it's like no you, you can't know <laughs> yeah. but but so and so you say well then how do you how can you think something through and part of the answer to that is always take into account the cost of what you're doing now right because what people tend to think is well what i'm ever whatever i'm doing now is risk-free and here's a bunch of options it's like no whatever you're doing right now has all sorts of risks you're just you're just blind to them because you've habituated to them they've become invisible but so you can't you can't wait around you can't wait around to make things better on the assumption that what you're doing already is without risk yeah it's it has and, and this is so useful for people to know costs, that's exactly it well, so when people come to see me clinically for example and maybe i'm helping them figure out what to do with their career so they say well i think i might need to change jobs it's like okay what's stopping you well there's lots of things right well i have a job that's something it offers me some some security my cv isn't up to date people don't like updating their cvs and well then it's partly because it's hard but also because they're not very proud of it right so even if they did update it it doesn't say what they want it to say so then updating your CV turns into sort of updating your life and that's a complicated thing and then maybe you don't like being interviewed because most people don't and maybe you don't like being judged and maybe you don't like the fact that if you look for another job there'll be 50 rejections for every one acceptance it's like there's a whole plethora of terrible things you have to encounter if you want to change jobs so you think well I'm not going to do that the risk is too high it's like fair enough what's the risk of doing what you're doing and that's easy you don't like it guaranteed suffering yeah, yeah. well <laughs> yeah and accelerating suffering because yeah. let's say you're 35 now and you don't change your job well you'll be 40 so fast you can't even believe it it'll just happen like it'll take five years but it happens it happens overnight at this in the same way mm -hmm. and if you haven't changed then you'll be the same except worse so that's the alternative if you're not if you're not if you don't find what you're doing sufficiently productive or responsible or meaningful or engaging or all of that it's like well there's a big risk in changing it it's like yeah there is yeah but just try the risk a, of not that, changing that's it. that bad analysis of reality mm -hmm. the cost of staying and the cost of non-action that's mm -hmm. just chewing up you know chewing up your life force and your vitality and then it's funny you know in one of the things i learned last year which which i thought was quite cool is i i was doing these series of biblical lectures and i went through genesis and i i didn't know the abrahamic stories very well but i learned them when i was lecturing about them and the story of Abraham in particular is interesting because it's really set up at the beginning in an, in an absurdly comical manner because Abraham, when he gets the call from God to go out in the world, he's like 80 already. He's been hanging around his father's tent like 
being dependent way too long. And that's exactly how this story is set up. So, and God calls him and says, look, get away from the security, get out there in the world. So it's the call to adventure. That's mm. essentially what it is. And then Abraham goes out in the world and it's like the first three things that happens to him are absolutely terrible. He encounters a famine, which is no joke, right? Like it's it's a real yeah. famine. People are starving. Like we don't know what that's like. That's no that's no joke. And then he ends up in Egypt, which is a tyranny. And then they try to take his wife. And you think, well, what's Abraham thinking? He's thinking, I should have stayed at home in my damn tent, you know. And but the the, the issue there is that, and the reason the story is set up that way. I mean, Abraham eventually becomes very successful. The reason this story is set up that way is because it's a realistic story. It's like there's a cost to staying where you are, mm. and there's a cost to moving forward. And the cost to moving forward is real, and it's non-trivial. But it's not as bad as the cost of staying where you are. Also, so, it's also kind of brilliant that he's that old because it reminds people that it's not too late. Mm. Mm, it's right. not too right. Late. Right. Exactly. And, and I think I, you know what's mm. it's crazy to me because I remember thinking when I was like 30 before I started on it, and I was very frustrated because I knew I had more I wanted to give, and it things weren't working out. I was like, I'm already 30, it's too late. Yep. If I was gonna do something awesome, it would've happened yep. already. And that was me at 30. Yep. You know, and, and you can play that game over and over, no matter what age you are, you can use that rationalization to stay put. And say, ah, oh, it's too late, I missed the boat. Glory then, days, that's yeah, the Springsteen not, song, right? Yeah. People conclude that when they're 16. Yeah. Like, I'm done, <laughs> high school, I peaked, man. Yeah. It's like, that's not a good, that's not a good theory. And it's, you know, it's in that striving towards those things that you're a little afraid of and, and actually looking towards and the actualization of your potential, which is going to be fucking scary. Mm. And that's, I think, you know, one of the stories that I've really enjoyed reviewing with this new, new kind of lens mm. that I've put on is the King Arthur myth. And mm -hmm. particularly the Guy Ritchie telling of it has been pretty compelling to me. I mm -hmm. don't know if you've seen mm -hmm. that one. No, I haven't seen it yet. Theatrically, it's, it's really interesting. And in that story, you know, Excalibur is a representation of his potential, mm -hmm. you know, his soul, his ability to create, you know, effect on the world, his, mm -hmm. you know, his, his real potential. And there's a scene in there where every time he touches the sword and puts both hands on it, he goes into a visionary state and he becomes not only, he becomes the, the truest essence of King Arthur. Like he can slow time. He can actually bend the world. He's the ultimate disruptor and the mm -hmm. ultimate force of order against chaos, which is crashing down mm -hmm. on what mm -hmm. will be Camelot. And as he's trying to he's trying to touch the sword and he's trying to do it, he keeps touching it and looking away. And the mage who's, you know, in the wisdom keeper in the in this story, you know, looks at him and says, It's okay, we all look away. Mm -hmm. That's the that's the fright that's the fr flight of the hero. It's a very, very old yeah. it's a very, very old mythological element. Whenever the hero encounters the dragon of chaos, almost always he takes flight. You even see that in mm -hmm. Pinocchio. When Pinocchio finally encounters Monstro, he turns tail and 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 tries to vanish as rapidly as possible. Because it's not till then that it's really real. Yeah. It's like, oh, this is way worse than I thought. It's like, oh yeah, it's way, way worse than you thought. Yeah. But luckily there's more to you than you think. And you have to you have to go and be willing mm -hmm. to to figure out and, and embrace what your potential is. Mm -hmm. But why what is at the root of that deepest fear of our own potential? You know, like at the at the very core, like why are we scared of becoming who in in your mind of mm. becoming who we really are? You know, and really actualizing ourselves. Well, I think fully. I think some of it is responsibility. Is the responsibility? I think so too. You know, so it's like, okay, let's walk through this. Let's say you want to become who you could be in the fullest sense. 
So let's say you're someone who's going to solve some serious problems. Okay, the first thing you have to do is admit to the seriousness of the problems. That's no joke, right? So the problems are, let's say, the tragedy of the world, the malevolence of the human heart, and the tyranny of the state. And like, those are, if those, if, if, if you don't understand that you would run from those problems when you really looked at them, then you haven't considered the problems. And they exist at all levels, right? It's not just the social and the political or the economic, it's also the psychological. It's like, well, human malevolence. There's an abyss, that's a hellish abyss. And it plays itself out in the political world, but it plays itself out in your own world too, in your psychological world. And so the first thing is just the terror of the problem itself. And that's enough to paralyze you, right? And, and that's the hydra, that's the gorgon with the head of snakes. It'll paralyze mm-hmm. you like you're a pre, like you're a prey animal and, and turn you to stone. That's the basilisk in the Harry Potter series. Mm-hmm. You look at it and it turns you to stone and lurks underneath everything, right? And it's malevolence and tragedy. And and so and so there's that. And then the next is, well, you're gonna take responsibility for that? You're really gonna do that, are you? That's a hell of a load, man. And so it's daunting to even consider that. And then there's the discipline and responsibility that that necessitates, which is also daunting. It's like, oh my God, the problem's that serious. I'm really gonna have to get my act together in order to not contribute to it, much less solve it. Yeah. And so the problem is terrible. And then the, the solution is daunting. But, but the upside of that is, is like, well, there isn't anything better to have than a problem that's worth solving, like that's really worth solving. Right, and so the more of that you take on, the more you have a reason to get out of bed in the morning, no matter what. Think I'm getting up, I'm trudging forward. Doesn't matter what I'm suffering from. I've got things that need to be done. They're necessary, and that gives you that sense of purpose that is the antidote to bitterness. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, there's lots of reasons to, you know, because I've thought for a long time. Imagine that. Imagine you have a choice in front of you because you do. So here's the choice. Your life, life is either meaningful or meaningless. Okay, so let's go through the meaningless part first. Because you think, well, of course I don't want it to be meaningless. It's like, yeah, just hold on a second. Nothing you do matters. And so impulsive pleasure is the order of the day. No responsibility. That's, you can do whatever you want. It's like Pleasure Island in Pinocchio, right? Or it's, the, it's like Neverland in, 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 in Peter Pan. You're still a kid. You can play all the time. Yeah. Impulsive pleasure and, and no responsibility. That's the reward for meaninglessness. Okay. Think, well, you know, there's something to be said about that. And powerlessness to mm-hmm. a certain degree. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, but then the, the other side is, okay, well, let's say you want your life to be meaningful. It's like, okay, then what you do matters. It actually matters, right? You make a mistake, hurts you, hurts your family, hurts the world in a deeper way than you think. And you have to be awake to that. And then you have to take it on yourself. It's one thing I, I understood probably over the last five years, I was trying to understand this idea. There's an idea that Christ is the person who takes on the sins of the world onto himself, I thought. What does that mean? Because there's a redemptive idea there, right? If So the idea is the redeemer, the person who redeems everyone is the person who takes the sins of, wor- of the world onto himself. What does it mean? Radical it means it's your fault, man. Yeah, Radical yeah, yeah, everything, the whole bit. And I think yeah. people get tripped up also because at the moment where you admit to yourself that you have the potential to change something, mm-hmm. you have to admit to yourself that you've always had the potential mm-hmm. to change something. So you have to go oh, back in this recapitulation of everything that you've done and actually confront 
what you haven't done and all the people you've hurt and all the things, the ways that you've hurt yourself, all the ways that you could have done better. And if that judge is too strong and too harsh and wants to punish you too severely, you say, no, no, judge, I had no power. I'm going to stay here in hell in powerlessness with everybody else because of the oppressive forces that are out there. I don't take any responsibility. But that fucking courage of going, hey, you know, I am responsible for myself and I can make a difference. And I've fucked up in the past Mm -hmm. and I've, I will fuck up again, mm-hmm. but I'm going to own this. Like yeah. that is the true hero's choice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, it's also the fact that you're fallible is no excuse for not taking responsibility. Right. You know, when, in, when Solzhenitsyn, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, wrote the Gulag Archipelago, which you know is one of the things that brought the terrible Soviet Empire to a standstill. That book, he did that. He said he went over his whole life with a fine tooth comb. Every single thing. When he when he was in prison, he realized that he had done many things that put him in prison. So that he was in two kinds of prisons. He was in the prison the Soviet state produced. And then he was in the prison that the Soviet state produced that he participated in producing that then imprisoned him both at the same time. And so when he figured that out, he thought, okay, well, what did I do in my life to increase the probability that I would end up where I ended up? And so he said he went over his life with a fine-tooth comb. And his question was, is there something I can do now to atone for what I failed to do in the past? And I mean, that was a serious question. He wasn't playing a game. That's why he you know, could memorize a 1,500-page book, essentially. <laughs> I mean, it was no game. And and the consequences of that were literally world-changing. So that's an interesting thing. Well, So let's say you go over your past with a fine-tooth comb, and you decide you're going to take responsibility for everything that you did that was wrong and everything that you failed to do that you could have done that was right. It's like, does that change the world? It's like, depends on how thoroughly you do it. it. You might say it changes the world like nothing else possibly can. And I think that that's actually right. Yeah. And that's also a frightening thought because it means that things would be way better than they are if you weren't so damn useless. Yeah. And, yeah. and really the truth of the matter is even if you can't, if you're doing the math, math, doing the arithmetic, you can't actually account in the amount of time and the amount of damage and whatever, mm-hmm. you can't actually make up for it. It doesn't mm-hmm. matter because all you have is now mm-hmm. and all you have is the ability to charge out mm-hmm. and do your fucking best. Mm-hmm. Like, you Yeah, know, well, that's part of that moderation that you were talking about. <clears throat> you don't want the judge to be so harsh that... You, you can do nothing but cut your throat, right? Because yeah. that can happen to people as they, sure. they get so guilty and so overwhelmed by what they've done. And sometimes that's part of a pathological process. You know, they're ill in some sense. You don't want to, the, the, the answer to how you pay for your past sins isn't by jumping off a bridge. It's the wrong answer. It Even isn't though constantly you might... lashing yourself and keeping you in hell for the hell that you've created right. prior. Right. You know, the, right. the penance is actually striving out forward with love and with heart and with change and with service. Yeah. Like that's how you make up for it. Not by punishing yourself, yeah. by actually driving yourself towards your fears to slay the dragons, to ease yeah. the suffering of the world. Well, I think about it the way, you know, what you do when you have a child, if you love the child is like the child makes a mistake and well, and you think, well, you can't allow that. So there's a, a disciplinary element there. Well, what's the purpose of the discipline? To decrease the probability of repetition of the mistake. That's all. So you yeah. use the minimal necessary force. I wrote about that in chapter five. Minimal necessary force necessary to attain that. And you do the same thing with yourself. It's like, mm-hmm. well, how much do you need to be beat up? Enough so you fix the problem. No more than that. Minimal yeah. necessary force. It's a great English common law uh, principle. Maybe mm-hmm. the greatest, although there's a number of them, but that one's really up there. So yeah, don't don't hit anything harder than it needs to be hit. That's a good rule of thumb. Yeah, well, that is the rule of thumb. The rule of thumb, I <laughs> think, was, is yeah. yeah. That's a, a fucked up rule. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is yeah. <laughs> oh, although no. what it replaced was even worse. 
So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, to think of that as an improvement is yeah. also a scary yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah, right. Absolutely. To think about as well. Yeah. All right. I want to talk about um, switch gears a little bit and talk about telling the truth. Yeah. And Or at least not lying. At least not lying. Yeah. At least not lying. And in my question really comes in, you know, to me, so, so truth is always your instrument playing in perfect attunement. And it's like, that is its own harmony. That's the instrument playing as well as it can possibly mm -hmm. play. Mm -hmm. But we're in something of an orchestra mm -hmm. and there's many instruments playing and all of the relationships that we have. And, and as that, that orchestra is going, we get a song going and usually most of the instruments in that orchestra are out of tune and mm -hmm. it creates a kind of order. It creates a song. Mm -hmm. There's a point sometimes where by tuning your instrument to truth, you're going to throw the entire orchestra off mm -hmm. because your instrument will be playing that perfect tone, you know, and everything else will have to adapt mm -hmm. to that truth. And I think ultimately that is corrective, but temporarily it can throw everything into chaos right. as people have to adapt to that. So right. in that situation, is there well, a that's time- heroes get crucified. Yeah, yeah, exactly, because they're playing a note that's true, and the whole orchestra of society is playing a note on faulty instruments, yeah. and that thing stands out, and they want to yeah. kill that thing. Yeah, well, that's what Caiaphas says. It's something like, it's expedient that one man die for the sake of the, of the, of the rest, of the crowd, right? Mm -hmm. Think, well, yeah, except unless the man is right, right then you made the wrong choice. So, yeah, yeah okay, so, so that can definitely happen. So, okay, so is there a place for strategy? Is there a place for strategy in the in the amount of time it takes you to tune? Do you tune your instrument slowly mm -hmm. to truth? That's what I think. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, so how does how does man. how does strategy and truth kind of interplay? You know, because ultimately that's the goal. That's what you aim at. No doubt. That's the target. Yep. Truth. Right. Yep. But I think getting from where you are to truth. You know how much how much do you think people should pay attention to the to the external effects that, that that attunement will cause. Yeah, well, that's a, that's a good question because, you know, you might think of, okay, so here, here's a way of thinking about it. Mm -hmm. So imagine, this is what I used to do when I graded essays. Okay, so I, I, I kind of formalized it. I thought, okay, what is an essay exactly? And where can you make mistakes? And where can you get it right? Okay, well, there's the word. You're going to pick the right word and spell it properly. Okay, so good you're going to get the right word. You're going to put the word in the right phrase. You're going to put the phrases properly together into the right sentence. You're going to organize the sentences in the proper manner into the correct paragraph. And then you're going to sequence the paragraphs properly so that you make a coherent argument so the whole thing works. So it's like an orchestra right there again, right? There's many, or more like an orchestral uh, piece. There's many things happening simultaneously and they all have to be correct. They all have to be attuned to truth. Now let's say the same thing is the case when you're acting in the world, right? Because there's there's you in the immediate present, and then there's the future you, and then there's your family in the immediate present, and your future family, and there's the broader community, and and there's and there's more levels than that. You and you have to get you have to take all those levels of analysis into account. Like if you're really going to go after the truth, which is why, like your metaphor, the orchestral metaphor, I think is a really good one. Mm -hmm. um, in fact, I think that's why people like orchestras actually, because that's what they they play out in some sense. Well, so if you're going to do things right, you have to do them. You have to do them at all those levels simultaneously. And then you might think, well, I'm going to radically depart at this one level and be more truthful. Like, I'm, I'm going to tell my wife what I really think of that dress. <laughs> it's like, well, don't be so sure that that impulse 
which happens to be true at one level of analysis, is sufficiently sophisticated so that it's optimally true at all, at all levels. It's very, that's the white lie problem, right? Sometimes, well, sometimes you say, well, I needed to, to bend the truth a little bit so that I didn't hurt someone worse at a more important level of analysis. It's like, well, sometimes, sometimes you find yourself in a situation like that. I would say that you should strive not to find yourself in situations like that. It's probably already too late. Typically, you almost, you anticipate that there's going to be more of a problem with telling the truth than there actually Mm -hmm. is. Mm -hmm. Usually, the orchestra, even if it goes out of balance, and I've had this experience, actually, since reading your book, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and, and really looking at that, you know, there was one area where there was a, I was kind of operating with a lie of omission. Mm-hmm, yeah. The question hadn't been asked. Yeah, yeah. My answer hadn't been told. And I knew, and mm-hmm. this was actually, this was actually, last, this was actually last night. Yeah, and so yeah. last night, and I'm reading this, I'm trying to come into this with as clear a heart as possible. Yeah. And I'm just finished listening to all your podcasts, reading your book. And I, I knew there was something that was unexpressed. And I knew that for some time, I didn't know how much time that would throw that would throw the the little duet that yep. we were having yep. out into chaos yep. Yep. for a yep. while. Yep. But I just had this faith that, all right, it's going to go out into chaos, but ultimately the harmony that will come will win the day yep. because I won't have that little bug. Well, that is faith in truth, I would say. Is that, yeah. But, but that, and that, I think that's exactly right. But, but I also think that it's importantly separate from the strategic problem. Like mm-hmm. I've had people write me and say, here's some things that are happening at work that I really can't tolerate. Should I quit my job? Like, well, let's not rush into that as a solution. Because first of all, what makes you think that you've lived your life carefully enough so that you get to quit your job, right? Because, well, do you have people depending on you? What the hell are you going to do with them? You're just going to like have them flap out in the wind? Maybe you don't have the right to clear your conscience right now. Maybe you haven't set the circumstance up so that you have enough autonomy. Maybe you already sold your soul enough so that you don't get to break out of prison today. Now, I might be wrong too, like maybe it's time for you to quit your damn job, but but you don't want to risk, you don't want to carelessly risk, you don't want to carelessly risk to free yourself from a moral obligation impulsively. It's yeah. not smart. So I would say like, okay, now you want to tell the truth at work. Maybe maybe you're getting bureaucratized in a variety of ways, or maybe the social justice warriors have invaded your enterprise and they're they're playing crooked games with your with your enterprise and you need to stand up and say something about it it's like well is your cv in order right have yeah, you got yeah, some yeah. job applications so there's there? the strategy you there's bet, the man. strategy and the attunement to truth mm-hmm. aim at it mm-hmm. but take the time take mm-hmm. the time to plot the course yeah, well, and understand the real life consequences mm-hmm. of that yeah well otherwise you just commit harry curie on your on your boss's <laughs> right. doorstep and then right. you're dead it's yeah. like well maybe it's time for that but probably but not probably not right right you know, i would look at other strategies before you decide that yeah. I think I think that, and then you know because the other right thing on. you might be doing is thinking, well, I, I don't really have enough courage to tell the truth, and so what I'm going to do is I'm going to make this little blaze of glory thing. I'm going to quit my job and I'm going to tell the <laughs> truth, and then I'm going to catastrophically fail at that, and then I get to be cynical about telling the truth for the rest of my life, and I can say to myself, well, I tried it once and it was a catastrophe, <laughs> and so I don't have any more responsibility. It's like that's not a good game no, either. That's not a good game no. either. You know, I was talking to one of my spiritual mentors and I asked a question, something that I'd been pondering for a while. And I think um, I was really surprised at the answer. And I asked him um, if Jesus made a mistake Mm -hmm. in the strategy of what he was saying. Because for one, his words have been misconstrued and used for all types of malevolence from Mm -hmm. the Inquisition, et cetera, for thousands of years. Many people have suffered from that. 
And, you know, for two, he himself was killed before he could produce more, you know, incredible, mystical, powerful work. And mm-hmm. whatever. So, I, so I've pondered, like, well, did he make a strategic error? And the, the answer that came back that was really interesting was, well, the game's not over yet. We've only mm-hmm. had 2,000 years. Mm-hmm. These teachings will last for the next 5,000, 10,000 years and be revivified. So you can't judge whether he made a mistake mm-hmm. now because the game is not well, over. Well, this is okay. That was so, really well, okay, so I think that's also tied into this idea that you brought up just before that about you know your your faith was when you were going to utter this this truth that you had omitted. Mm-hmm. You knew that it was going to cause disharmony. Yeah. And you think, well, why cause disharmony? And the answer to that is in service of a higher harmony. And now you got to watch that kind of reasoning because it can go astray, but that's but but I think there are situations where that's clearly justified. Um, but your faith in that situation is that it is the truth that will lead you to a higher harmony. And the reason that you have to have faith in that is because you you, you can't play it across all time frames. All the yeah. evidence isn't in. You have to decide. It's like, what's best, falsehood or truth? Well, prove it. It's like, sorry, it's dependent on time frame. You know, because look, if you're a little mm-hmm. kid, you're eight years old, and you've done something you shouldn't do and your dad says you know did you do x and you know the you're gonna have to sit in your bedroom for like an hour if you did you don't want to go sit in your damn bedroom you're gonna go play with your friends you think i'll just say no i didn't do it it's like well is that a good idea well if the time frame is the next hour it's a fine idea because you don't have to go sit in your bedroom you can go play with your friends you think hey yeah. that was a good idea it's like yeah cross that time frame but as an iterative strategy I wouldn't recommend it. And so part of part of what our religious texts, I would say, the profound religious texts indicate to people is although you don't know it and you can't for sure, the best iterative strategy is to tell the truth. And so then you think, well, am I going to take that risk? It's like, well, that's up to you. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's not that cut and dried. It's not like you're completely in a veil of ignorance because most people know if they're honest with themselves, if they can still be honest with themselves, that lying is something they're ashamed of. So that's an interesting fact. And that if they contemplate the effect of lying in their life, most of the evidence is that it's not the sort of strategy that makes you happy to be around. I think I th- I don't think I've ever met anyone who didn't finally admit to that, you know. Yeah. And maybe in my clinical practice, of course, I meet people who know that things aren't what they should be and would and are trying to improve. So they've already kind of had that dark night of the soul, so to speak. You sure. Know? I mean, you meet people sometimes who are narcissistic and who think I'm getting away with it, I'm getting away with it, and everything's good. But even that's pretty damn brittle. So. I think it's I think you have to have radical truth as the goal as the target that you aim for you know and I, and I think a lot of times we th- kind of think that the target should be 90% truth mm-hmm. you know yeah, right. and, and I th- like and I think we set our sights yeah. too low yeah. no. you know like the in in a relationship no, particularly no in 90% and, and truth <laughs> yeah like no. you should because otherwise it's just a little bit out of tune yeah, yeah, it's like you're yeah. playing your flamenco yeah. a little bit out well, of tune that doesn't problem, sound good. the other problem too is is that it just makes your life so damn complicated it's stressful well, let's, well here's here's something people don't think about this they think well isn't it good the divorce laws were loosened it's like yeah maybe it's like if you if every time you have with 
a fight with your wife, if you want to think, oh, I could have a whole new life, then it's a good idea. But you want to ask yourself, you really want to think that every time you have a fight? It's like, maybe you don't want to think that. Maybe you want to think, I'm bloody well stuck with this. I better fix it. I mean, it isn't obvious which of those two things leads to more contentment. And the fact that everything could always be up in the air completely every time something goes wrong, that's not, that's not, imagine if a kid felt that. You know, it's like, imagine you had the right to walk away from your kid. And so your kid thinks, well, Jesus, I better not have a fight with dad because he might just leave and never come back. Mm. It's like, yeah, not I, helpful. I, think, I agree. I think that, but that is your own personal responsibility to not throw that up in the air. Mm. I don't think there should be an oppressive force that's saying you can't get out of this contract well, that, and enforce, enforce the morale. Like fair you enough. should also, you should have that that own, you know, that own responsibility on yourself to mm. not even allow yourself to think that. Yeah, well, so you could say, well, that that's a reasonable point. You could say the optimal situation is where you can but don't. Right. You know, and that that's an interesting point too because one of the things I've thought a lot about is, you know, there's there's an old theological, the old theological question I suppose is why would God allow evil to exist in the world? And I think it's like that. It's something like well, you can but you shouldn't. But if you couldn't, there'd be no free will. You'd have no yeah. agency. You'd have no choice. So the possibility of evil has to exist. But that doesn't mean you have to actualize it. Yeah. And because one of the things I thought through, and I, I read a lot about this in, in 12 Rules, maybe even more in this in Maps of Meaning in my first book, is like, well, um, what amount of the evil of, the, of being can be laid at the feet of God, so to speak? And my conclusion to that was, well, maybe none of it, like earthquakes, cancer, you know, disease, all of that, that's built into the structure of reality, and there's no doubt that it's terrible. But malevolence, to me, that looks like something people choose. Mm -hmm. So, and that we could choose, we could we could not choose. We could actually choose not to do that's that. A, that's an inevitable consequence of free will. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's the price you pay for free. It's price that is yeah. paid for free will. Is that and I think that's a differentiation mm -hmm. between order and chaos, mm -hmm. which are the two balancing forces which set the game board, mm -hmm. which allows free will. Mm -hmm. you know, and then we get to come as God represented here as man. Mm -hmm. You know, We have the choice of which path we go because mm -hmm. we have these opposing forces. Mm -hmm. And then... You know, yeah, I, I think I, I think that's how it, I think that. that is how it is. I think that the the fundamental landscape is order versus chaos, and the drama that's played on top of that is good versus evil. Mm -hmm. I think that's correct. I think that that's that's in every choice you make, that's basically the choice: is you're either going up to the right hand quadrant or you're going down. And I also think that you know that. Yeah, that's why the devil stands at the crossroads, right? You know, the old blues idea: mm -hmm. meet the devil at the crossroads. It's like, of course you do. Where else would you meet him? And I think I think another really important point that you make is that we are neither by nature good nor mm. evil. We contain the proclivity and possibility mm. of all those possible mm. options. We are devil and Christ mm. in one, an angel with devil's horns, if mm. you will. And it's just our choice alone mm. and our actions that determine posthumously whether we were good mm -hmm. or not, because those forces are inside us. And you know, that's what it looks like to the me. denial of those forces actually allows those forces to steer you even further mm -hmm. you know and the unrecognition of your shadow and the unrecognition mm -hmm. of your aggression and lust and all of these other you know that's why christ meets the devil in the, in the meets, meets in the satan desert. in the desert sure sure it's exactly that it's and that's part of of the recognition of you as the source of malevolence like actually you actually <laughs> yeah which is really quite something you know i mean one of the one of the things that i i've tried to do in my teaching is 
I've taught a lot about what happened in Nazi Germany. And one of the things I've really tried to do is to dis, is to remove the students' illusions and certainty that they would have been on the side of good had they been there. It's like, no, probably not. At minimum, you would have been complicit in your silence. Everyone was like that, with, with tiny exceptions. It's like, you think you're not like that? It's like, you might be right, but I wouldn't count on it. Mm. I wouldn't count on it. The numbers suggest otherwise. That they certainly do, yes. And, and of course, it's not just Nazi Germany. I mean, the same thing happened in the Soviet Union and in and Eastern Germany all over in the 20th century. It's like, yeah. no, you're probably a perpetrator. You know, and I think in the, in the way that good triumphs over evil in all of these stories is that there's a, there's a truth, love, God, I've found to be synonyms, you mm-hmm. know, and when mm-hmm. you can, and when you start to interchange those and, and you find this real solid place, mm-hmm. yeah, that's, yeah, you know, like the solidity right. that you can yeah. orient to. And then, and then that feels real and everything else feels like illusory yeah, and slippery right. and painful. And like you're walking on this thing with barbs. Sometimes yeah. it feels good, the power, this rush that you feel from those kind of darker impulses, yeah. but it's, it's, it doesn't last. No. It's not solid. No, you can't really solid. stand on it. It's no. like a humor that envelops you and then goes away and leaves you more empty on yeah. the other side, you know? So you ultimately when you explore these honestly and you honestly take stock and you're conscious and you're aware the only thing solid is that path towards the good yeah well and again it's it it sort of falls into the realm of self-evident at some point it's like well um you want things to be better or worse that's the first question it's like and you think better it's like no 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 that isn't what i mean i mean you really got to think about it yeah. because there's part of you that wants things to be worse you d- dance around in the flames like you'd be glorying in it i mean hitler when when he committed suicide and europe was in flames it's like well, that's what he, he got what he was aiming at mm. think well he was aiming at victory it's like well that's one theory but i wouldn't count on that being true what do you you, th- you really think hitler was aiming for victory really that's your analysis no he was aiming for mass murder and death and everything in flames that's yeah, like the bane. Exactly it's the bane got. archetype mm-hmm. in Batman. Sure, of course, you know, exactly. Or Joker, Joker even better. Or, yeah, all of he those. Was, and uh, you know, who knows if that killed Heath Ledger? Right. Because I mean, he, he accessing that mm-hmm. force. Oh yeah, that's yeah. like the utter extreme force of chaos. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because one of the things that's so interesting about his performance, and he really tapped into this, is that you really saw that when he burned the pile of money. Mm-hmm. It's like, no, no, you don't understand. I want everything to be worse than it is everything it's like you don't want the money those guys weren't evil they were just criminals they're barely even on the path right because you want your car they want your car their means of achieving it differ but they're in the value structure and the joker character is like no he's outside the value structure completely it's no you don't get it i want to make an art of pain it's even thinking about it now it seems like an even more extreme polarity of the devil than the usual archetype of the devil. Mm. It's usually the archetype of the devil, king of the demons, into power, likes making mm. deals, likes right, bargaining. Right, right, right. That's that's, the, that's Milton Satan. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And this mm. Joker is actually you can just take it even a little farther, and this is like absolutely just wants maximum suffering. Right, 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 right. For the sake of suffering. For the sake yeah, of that's suffering evil. itself. Evil is evil is the worship of suffering for the sake of suffering. Yeah, yeah. And and Ledger played that out quite nicely in that role. It was quite yeah. brilliant. It really. was, yeah, it, it really was, and it's really, yeah, it was really calibrating that, calibrating that side, and I think it's good to see those archetypes and then calibrate, mm-hmm. and when you have a, tr- a truer understanding of the Christ consciousness, mm-hmm. you know, which has obviously been misconstrued in a lot of ways, 
And then you have these two anchors on either side and you get to understand, all right, here's the spectrum, you know, and I think that's helpful for like orienting, mm. orienting ourselves. Well, it's really, it's, I mean, that's, that's why people are so, at least part of the reason why people are so enamored of bad guys. Like the thing about a bad guy is that he's actually more understandable than a good guy. You know, it, it, and, and, and easier to believe in, in some sense. You know, you can, you can really believe in the existence of a bad guy. And that's a good guidepost because if the guy that you believe in is actually bad, then that's an indication that there's such a thing as good. It's just the opposite of that. Now, what, what the opposite of the Joker is, is not so easy because it's not Batman, right? No. I mean, no, and Batman knows Batman's it. And that's, part, that's, that's actually part of the complexity of that interaction in that particular movie is the Joker knows that Batman's not his opposite. He's not the Joker. He's not the devil incarnate. He's actually a good man but he's no Christ. Right. And so the Joker's constantly reeling him in. Says, you're more like me than you think. It's like, yeah, and there's no doubt about that. Mm-hmm. So, And so then the, what's the opposite of suffering for suffering's sake? Well, love make, for love's sake. Well, I guess it's something like that, yeah. You, yeah. Know, you see that in the Sermon on the Mount too. I mean, as far as I can tell, the basic message of the Sermon on the Mount is something like, assume that being is good and that your role is to further that good and that the most appropriate way to do that is to tell the truth and concentrate on the day. It's something like that. Mm. And that that strikes me as, well, it strikes me as extraordinarily wise. It's like set and your sights. Tell, tell the truth, tell love. Yeah, tell the truth. You know, and I love using those words interchangeably, mm. truth and love, mm-hmm. you know, because I don't think you can have, I don't think you can be in love with someone without being in truth with them. Mm-hmm, right. I don't think you can be in truth with someone without expressing that mm. love. That's why when people use that analogy about, oh, your dress is ugly. Mm-hmm. Well, that's truth on a very fractional yeah, yeah, level, exactly, right? Yeah, because yeah. it's not containing the love mm-hmm. and the love that's which right. sees that it doesn't matter what the fuck you wear because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. you're beautiful, mm-hmm. not because of your dress. You're mm-hmm. beautiful regardless. And if you mm-hmm. want to wear a fucking sack, wear a fucking sack, mm-hmm. we'll laugh. Mm-hmm. You know, that would be the higher around order. with the sack. Yeah, yeah. That's a higher truth. That's mm-hmm. a higher love, mm-hmm. you know? And, and I think recognizing that and holding that as that ideal and not getting lost in, well, this is my judgmental opinion based upon some very small aspect of the self. I mean, I met yeah. Glenn Beck last night and after my show and he said, he was watching, he was watching the lecture and he said, and I guess, yeah, he said that he met lots of, he's met a lot of celebrities, let's say, and that many of them don't like their audience. They don't like them, you know, and I like my audience. I'm happy to see people come out to the show. I'm happy to meet them afterwards because they're, most of the people I meet are trying to put their lives together. It's like, good work, man, do it, do it. And so, you know, that's partly that acceptance. What of, a weird discord. What yeah. a, and, then, and I think the disharmony that you see in a lot of these celebrities, the suffering and the mm. angst must come from that. Mm. They're performing for people they have no connection to mm. and actually a distaste Well, you for. certainly see that Ooh, in the media. That's weird. Mm. You know, that's a and weird. one of the things, Dave Rubin and I have been talking about this, about this intellectual dark web, whatever the hell that is. You know, Eric Weinstein's interesting coinage. And we we're trying to figure out, well, we all got grouped together why it's not obvious because there's a lot of diversity of opinion you know like ben shapiro and and sam harris are a good example there's very little they agree on in in, or there's very much they disagree about but i would say one of the things that unites everybody in that group is that they don't think their audience is stupid there's no talking down rogan's like that too well you're like that as well it's like you're not assuming your audience is not only are you not assuming that your audience isn't stupid you're actually not assuming that you're any smarter than your audience. <laughs> totally. Right, right. Totally. Which is a really good thing to Always assume. Always something to learn. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, and I think the reason that I get away with what I do is because when I'm talking to the crowd and, and talking to people about 
you know, how they might conduct their lives. It's not like I'm not talking to me, you know, like I'm in that group of people who could like wake the hell up and, and act more appropriately and aim a little bit higher and improve things. It's like a constant reminder. And so there's no lecturing down. You, you want to be very careful about lecturing down about such sort, such things, right? Because then you take the, you're adopting the idea that you've already got that mastered. It's like, <laughs> yeah, good luck with that. Yeah. Good luck yeah, with yeah. that. I, I wouldn't do, I, a very little <laughs> bit of that goes a very long ways. It's, uh, it's mistaking the very fundamental truth that we are all each other living different lives. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, and that, that is like the basis of all compassion, mm-hmm. the basis of all love, the basis mm-hmm. of, of any real connection is mm-hmm. seeing self in another person mm-hmm. and saying like, oh, that's same, just, you know, bent differently. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that Mm -hmm. version, making different choices, having different influences, having different genetic structures and different forces that have acted upon them, but that's self. That's one thing you really learn if you work as a clinical psychologist. It's like, you know, well, what advice do you give your patients? It's like, well, I don't give them advice. They're clients first and not patients, but I actually try not to give them advice because it's like, I don't know what the hell is right for you. You know, I mean, you can talk about things like the necessity to, 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 on a, on a global level to, you know, appreciate beauty and seek truth and to live, live as if being is, is justifiable and good. Those are pretty low resolution and, 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 and they don't really qualify as advice. They're, they're principles in some sense that might guide people. But I was always very leery to suggest to my clients what they should do because I don't know. It's like, I don't know what you should do. I don't know what your problem is. You don't even know what your problem is. We're going to spend six months talking about what your damn problem is before we get that straight. And then we'll lay out some strategies together. But I'm going to listen to you because I don't know what the medicine for your particular brand of suffering is. We got to go through that very carefully. And and I don't want to steal your victory from you and make it mine. And I certainly don't want to be put in a position where I have an idea, you implement it and fail, and you bear the burden of the failure. It's like, mm-hmm. that's not helpful. Mm-hmm. It's, 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 a, it's a real thing. Then form they can of externalize theft. everything that happens, say, oh, that, I'll just get a new therapist. Mm. <laughs> you know, if it's your idea. Well, and they and also it fails, have to yeah. do the suffering. It's yeah, like, yeah. oh, I can say, oh, well, that wasn't a very good idea. It's <laughs> like, I should have shut the hell up about it then and not had the poor person go out and live it out. Yeah. It's like they have to be committed. You know, one of the things I've tried to establish with my wife over the years is we have a rule don't agree to anything you don't agree to because one of the things i didn't want was who wants this conversation it's like well five years ago you pressured me into this it's like oh god five years ago (laughs) really really i don't want ever i don't ever want to have that conversation what a great that's a great rule you want to you want to think you like and ba- being mindful of squashing the other person's opposing position. Mm-hmm. You know, as I'm CEO of this company, mm-hmm. if I squash <laughs> dissenting opinion, mm-hmm. we're going to go straight to the mm-hmm. fucking toilet. Mm-hmm. You know, like in a, in a relationship, if you squash the other person's opinion and volition. You know, then you, have a, then you get to live with a person whose volition and opinion has been squashed. Yeah. That's really fun. Yeah. <laughs> They're half dead, bitter as hell. They're, they're going to undermine you at every possible moment and you deserve it. It's like that's not that's not a good idea. And plus there's always the off chance that the annoying person who's criticizing you is right. Yes. So, you know, I mean, especially you have to if you discern get ups- especially if you get angry by it. That's mm, a good sign right. that they're probably for right, sure right. Right, right. Right. I don't want to hear that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh your work certainly gets people really motivated and fired up. I mean, touring you through on it, like I've 
I've we've had world champions, Stanley Cup winners, Super Bowl champs, celebrities. I haven't seen a stronger reaction from the people as as going through that. And I think it's a testament to how motivating your work is. And I think anybody who's it's such in, fun. It's such it's, mm, it's beautiful. What's so to see. fun for me right now is that wherever I go, I meet the best in people. That's what comes out. It's so fun. You know, walk down the street and someone will come up to me. I don't know who the hell they are. And they're they're very polite. They're happy to see me. And they have something really good to say about something that's going on with them. And they're pleased that they have someone to share it with. And it's real. It's like, that's really good. That's really fun. It's like, it's perfect. You get to go around and see the best in everyone. That's so cool. It's ridiculously cool. Yeah. And it's that it's that idea that 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 vibration that vibe that you put out that message that you put out calls forward that same mm-hmm. aspect of mm-hmm. the other people's self like attracts like mm-hmm. those deep fundamental rules and that that message that you constantly push will draw out mm-hmm. you know it's not the it's not the anger you know and it's not the anger and the hate that draws out the good mm-hmm. it's the love that draws mm-hmm. out the love it's the inspiration well, it's that so, draws out so the inspiration so after a talk say you know people people well, for a while they were lining up to have my book signed, but I, I had to stop doing that because there were too many. The venues got too big, mm-hmm. but I still see about 150 people after each after each talk. And what's really cool is they'll come up to me and they'll tell me, not, it isn't so much they'll tell me what problems they had. They will tell me that, but that's not the thing that's so remarkable. What they'll do is they'll say, here's a bunch of problems I had and here's what I did to fix it. And the reason they'll tell me is because they trust that I will say, that I'll actually be happy about that. They, they automatically trust that, they say. And that's such a nice thing to see, is that it's so good to see people come up and, and tell you that they've done something difficult and good and trust that you're gonna say, man, I'm just thrilled to hear that, which is what I always say. It's like somebody comes up and says, well, I was suicidal a year ago, you know? Somebody told me this last night. I was suicidal a year ago, and in, in jail and homeless a year ago, that was the story, and then, I was listening to your lectures. I got my act together. I went back to school. I got a career. And here's my girlfriend. We just got married and I have a little kid. It's like, whoa, <laughs> good work, man. And that's like a 15 second story. He says, do you mind if I show you a picture? It's like, sure, man, show me a picture. Yeah. That's great. Yeah, so that's really something. So, Well, on behalf of uh, myself and listeners and people, like, thank you for doing what you do. It's, uh, it's great to have your voice out there and, you know, may your heart be may your heart be full knowing and really feeling i know it's hard sometimes to because you have to protect yourself from the attacks and there's ways that you shell up and ways that you don't even look at the 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 effects of of your actions and how deeply that's affected people because it's hard it's hard to hold all that in space but um yeah it's okay well the right amount of controversy isn't zero (laughs) yeah you know and and the 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 attacks are interesting because well i mean there it's it's challenging you know to stay what would you say true well to also to not be to be to not to be knocked down by it mm-hmm. you know or angry angry about it but but i think well we'll see how this goes you know and what, what i've what i've seen so far is that and this has helped me understand something difficult like there's a statement in the new testament again that you should turn the other cheek it's like uh, really that's what the hell does that mean exactly because it's really easy to confuse that with having not having enough courage to stand up for yourself for example right but it isn't that but I, i've 
I've really been thinking about that for about two years, trying to, I think, well, that means something and I don't understand it. But one of the things it means is that if you don't respond too impulsively when people accuse you, if you let that whole thing play out, there are times when they reveal far more about themselves than about you. So if you can just shut up and take it, so to speak, and listen, then like a false accusation says more about the accuser than the person that's being accused. The, yeah. ac the accused person has to make sure that they don't fold and apologize and, you know, and manifest excessive signs of guilt and all that. And, and, and imagine this, imagine you go up to someone and you slap them in the face mm -hmm. and they don't react. Mm -hmm. They look at you with a warm smile mm -hmm. and turn the other cheek. Mm -hmm. Is that more is that well, more intimidating? And well, the person's like, ow, why mm -hmm. did you do that? And gets all fired up. Like yeah. that person you understand. The other mm -hmm. person is like, holy shit. Mm -hmm. That person just turned the other cheek. Mm -hmm. That is a bad motherfucker. Mm -hmm. Like I do not want to mess mm -hmm. with the guy who's like, oh, that was your best shot? Mm -hmm. Oh, that was cute. I, right, love, right. I love you anyway. Right, right. <laughs> you right, know, right. like that's that's a different thing. That's recognizing mm -hmm. the true power of who you are, the invincibility of the spirit and the, the soul and being grounded mm -hmm. in something that can't be buffered and mm -hmm. battered around by yeah well maybe that's why it's better to seek peace than victory if you have any right. sense you seek peace you know and so and in the situations i've been in with the journalists that have gone after me it it isn't that i wish them defeat because i don't i wish that we would actually have a real conversation that would be much better but i'm not trying to attain i'm not trying to defeat them in the conversation well you know I mean, I'll tilt in that direction now and then because I get, I get, <laughs> what would you say? I get impatient and, and, and all of that, you know, but, sure. but it's not, it's not something I'm, I'm happy about afterwards. I think, no, no, it would have been way better if we would have just had a conversation, you know, and you see these things coming out on YouTube, Jordan Peterson takes down a social justice warrior. God, there must be 50,000 of those bloody things by now. And, you know, they're, they're, well, they're obviously clickbait and, but they miss the point. It's like, no, no, you, you don't want to, you don't, you want peace, if you have any sense. You want peace. You don't want to defeat someone. Certainly not enough to make them into an enemy. That's, unless you want enemies. Yeah, yeah, it's it's aligning to the truth of your principles, not trying mm. to defeat the enemy. Mm. That which you resist persists. Mm. It's that if you're fighting against something, rather than fighting for something, mm. you're going to be way less effective. Mm. Fight for the good, mm. not against the bad. Mm, right. You know, and I think right, that's right. a really well, that, subtle and, yeah, distinction. Yeah, well, that's right. And I do think that that's aligned with that idea of, of turning the other cheek. Is that, yeah. that, that you need, and I've been thinking too, is the way, if victory is peace, then the, the person who attains peace is the person who tells the better story. That's It's a competition between stories. And I think that's yeah. also what's playing out right now in our cultures. There's a collectivist story that's being purveyed. And there's an individualist story that's being purveyed. And well, we'll see which one prevails. I think the individualist story, it's not selfish individualism, obviously, it's its enlightened individualism, but I think it's a much more compelling story for people. Compassionate individualism, mm -hmm. knowing who you are so that you can see yourself and everyone else mm -hmm. and have the compassion to truly help everybody mm -hmm. else, but it starts at home. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yes, well, it has to start where you are, and it has to start with the people that you can directly affect. So yeah. I think it's, it's got to start in a place. I think you said aim at heaven start at home mm -hmm, right fucking love that right right <laughs> fucking right. love that yeah well it's funny Damn. to see that this whole this clean your room thing has become such a of all the stupid catchphrases <laughs> you know it's like really that's become popular <laughs> you know yeah. but 
but there's a humility that's in it. Plus, it's also harder than people think. It's like, go ahead and try it. Set up your room so that it's like pristine, so that it's a place you can function, so it says what you want it to say. I so organized that nasty bathroom cabinet that was yeah, bothering yeah, me last and, night. Yeah, yeah, I felt damn yeah, good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Felt good. really good. There's all yeah. kinds of weird things, like yeah. old razors and things that I knew I should throw. I threw yeah. them all away. Yeah. I feel better. Yeah. Some little corner of me <laughs> feels a little better yeah. knowing that that nasty bathroom cabinet that I've been staring yeah, at. Yeah, right. Well, that is a little corner of you. It's one of the things I learned from Jung, from yeah. Carl Jung. He talked. He wrote a book called Mysterium Conjunctionis, and it's a, it's an analysis of the extension of the self. And hit for him, the the highest level of moral development was, the was the stage of realization that there isn't any distinction between you and your experience. It's like, well, that's messy bathroom cabinet. It's like, yeah, that's true, but it's also your state of mind when you go in there and look at it. Mm. Those aren't separable. So you think, well, I cleaned up the bathroom cabinet. It's like, yeah, well, you also cleaned up the experience that you have when you walk into that room. Those there's are the like, same thing. There's, a, there's 3% more joy in my bathroom mm -hmm. now. Right, And right. I'm in my bathroom 30 minutes a day. Right, the arithmetic. Right, right. It took me fucking four minutes to clean right. the bathroom cabinet. I get 3% more joy yeah. for 30 minutes a day. It's a fucking massive yeah, that's change. Right. That's right. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. It's a massive change. Yeah. It's yeah. Yeah. It's actually, and it's real too. Right? It's real. It's something you it's, could it's do. Real. I feel it. Right. I right. feel it now. Yeah, it's I feel the joy funny. percolating. <laughs> That's pretty funny. It's pretty funny. Yeah. It's been an honor. Thank you for stopping by. Thank Hopefully, you. we get to do this another time. Yeah. Well, that was great. Yeah. And I really absolutely. liked seeing your place. Like yeah. I said, I mean, Thank I, you. I watched, you know, how everyone was reacting when you were walking around, and you've really got, well, you've got a place here that's devoted to everything that's good about people. That's a good deal, That's what we're man. For. And then you get to live there. That's what we're That's aiming for. That's a good deal. <laughs> yeah, man. Yeah. It's heaven. It's heaven. All right. And self-authoring program. Oh, we yeah. got the code on it. Yeah, on it. I yeah. super encourage people to dive in there. This is a practice that I've done in my own myriad ways. I actually want to go through your structure because I've looked into it and it looks brilliant. Yeah. And, and even going back to the basics, even if you think, oh, I got most of this shit figured out, go back to the basics. Like go to the work. I promise you'll find something. Yeah. So for people who are interested, go to selfauthoring.com. Selfauthoring.com. Yeah. And the code is on it. On you get 20% yeah, off. Yeah, Please right. do it. Do yourself that's a favor. Right. Do the world a favor. Yeah. Because any change that you make, you know, shows the world that it's possible and then it'll allow you to, to push that out. This is something that I think all of us should do. So I encourage everybody to do that. Great. All right. All right. Thanks for stopping by. You bet. You bet. All right. See you, everybody. Peace. Well, certainly this is one of my favorite podcasts, and hopefully you guys are as fired up and motivated as I am after listening to Dr. Peterson. And if you are, definitely check out his self-authoring program, selfauthoring.com, code word on it to save 20%. That's a great place to start. If you're looking to support the body and mind, please check out my book, Own the Day, Own Your Life. That's available on Amazon and also available on Onnit. And if this is your first time listening to the podcast, I appreciate you stopping by. Please subscribe. we got a bunch of great guests. And also take a look at Onnit, O-N-N-I-T. This is the home base for human optimization. We put the very best tools we can and provide an opportunity for you to learn and for you to get a little bit better tomorrow than you are today. Very in line with everything we were talking about today on the podcast. So go to onnit.com slash Aubrey to get 10% off all your supplements and foods. That's O-N-N-I-T dot com slash Aubrey. And of course, check out Dr. Peterson's book, 12 Rules for Life. Check out my book, Own the Day, Own Your Life, and keep kicking ass and having fun. And I'll see you next time.